angel I looked out to the stars I held my dreams close to my heart I wanted to make the sounds That would calm the other's fears Just to be an island and dry all tears If the mill was French Town's heart, then the Strand Theater was its soul. To me, it became a celluloid sanctuary. For one thing, it was just a short walk from Stump City. As such, I was allowed to walk from my house to the Strand unaccompanied. After all, how much trouble could a preteen get into in a couple of hundred yards? <laughs> You'd be surprised. Second, it was one of the only buildings in town with air conditioning, a blessing on hot summer days when the daylight and the heat both seemed to last forever. Third, it was cheap. Saturday's lineup featured several cartoons, followed by a Three Stooges short, followed by the Kitty Show feature, often a Western, sometimes a Tarzan movie where Johnny Weissmuller wore only a loincloth and said Ngawa a lot, occasionally a sci-fi which featured a giant radioactively mutated insect which looked and moved like it was constructed of cardboard, probably was followed by a serial, Lost Raider Airmen of the Moon's Treasure, or something like that, followed by a short travel feature, which always ended with the words, and as we bid a sad farewell to beautiful Bora Bora, Tahiti, Hoboken, etc., followed by the two full-length features of the week. Now, this marathon amounted to roughly six hours of air-conditioned entertainment for 30 cents. And as a bonus, if you hid in the men's room after the entire program ended, you could sneak back into the auditorium for the evening show without having to pay again. Of course, the two features were the same ones you'd already seen in the afternoon, but remember that the Strand was Townsville's only large air-conditioned building, and sometimes comfort trumped boredom. Ask me to recite the entire dialogue from The High and the Mighty. That's the one where Duke's a commercial pilot and the plane is in trouble. And stand back. I do a great Robert Newton, by the way. He played one of the passengers in the film, but to me, he could only ever be the Disney version of Long John Silver. Whenever the stewardess walked down the aisle to make sure everyone's seatbelt was fastened, I expected to see a parrot on his shoulder. Several things made the Strand an important part of my upbringing outside of the obvious, convenient, inexpensive escape it provided, the first of which was its architecture. Every factory town had its theater, Windsor Locks had the Rialto, a.k.a. the Rat House. Windsor had the Plaza, there wasn't one, and Thompsonville had the Strand. Some towns even had legitimate theaters where plays or concerts were performed. I don't know if that was the Strand's genesis. The exterior was faintly Art Deco, so I suspect the Strand came later, probably in the 30s. There was a lobby with a concession stand, Candy cost six cents for a regular bar, 12 cents for an oversized one. The seats were dark blue, deeply upholstered, and by then, a little threadbare. The smell of the theater was a combination of must, popcorn, and B.O. But to me, it was the fragrance that dreams were made on. Not of. Shakespeare never said dreams are made of. Sam Spade said that in The Maltese Falcon. Uh, pardon the uh, digression. There was no balcony. But to me, the wonder of the Strand was the ceiling. 
In the center was a large recessed circle, and painted inside the circle were constellations with little light bulbs strategically placed to represent the principal stars of each. My favorite was Orion, with his three-starred belt and his dagger. Scorpio, with his claws and his stinger, was pretty cool, too. And Taurus the bull, with his star-tipped horns. All this in a kind of permanent twilight. Wondrous. Most films were, were still in black-white back then, and I liked that. In fact, it was the metaphorical black-and-white of movies that I liked most of all. Films back then had a moral clarity that infused my concept of what the world was, or at least of what the world should be. I still struggle with that issue. Are there any moral absolutes in this world? Is truth conditional? Air-conditional? <laughs> Is truth subjective? Is there such a thing as karma? And if so, is what goes around comes around our best hope? Is it our only hope, given that many of us no longer believe that justice will be administered in the afterlife? And what about irony? Is irony karma in action? You know, I couldn't be a cop, a defense lawyer, or a judge. If I were a judge, I'd be prone to ask questions before sentencing like, have you always been this stupid? Or, so how many times exactly did your mother drop you on your head? I might be even worse as a defense lawyer. Your Honor, this asshole has no redeeming qualities whatsoever. Lock him up with the rest of the tattoo crazies. Or, Your Honor, does this state still have the death penalty? It does? Great! Dust off old Sparky! Life was so much easier in the Strand. There was little nuance. It was easy to identify the good guys. They had names like Brad, Joe, and Johnny. They were always humble, modest, and respectful. They upheld the rule of law. If they were hurt, the injuries were never lethal. They healed quickly, completely, and bloodlessly. Women were young, pretty, and virtuous. They had names like Daisy, Donna, and Diana. Doris Day was the forever virgin, probably still is for that matter. You could kiss a woman chastely, if you want a tongue, then you'd better have an engagement ring handy. And babies, well, we knew they didn't come from storks. Nobody had ever seen a stork, much less one transporting the baby to beginning expecting parents. Raise your hand if you've ever seen a stork. So where did babies come from exactly? More immaculate conceptions? Mr. Clean strikes again. My mother once tried to explain where babies came from. I remember that she drew a picture on the back of an envelope. There was this oval-shaped thing with an opening on one end. Inside was an amorphous blob. She said that was me. When I asked her how I got inside the oval thing, she drew a small worm-like tube where the opening was and said that was how I both got in and got out. It looked too small for an entrance or an exit, but I needed time to contemplate the mysteries of life, so I didn't ask any more questions just then. Soon after, I duplicated the drawing for Patsy, who said that it reminded him of a peach cut in half with me as the pit. Patsy said that babies came from sex, but he didn't know how exactly. His bedroom was right next to his parents, and sometimes when his dad came home from having a few too many beers at the ringside, he'd leave their bedroom door open, and Patsy would hear all this grunting and moaning, and then his dad would yell, He shoots! He scores! And then he would start snoring. So naturally, we concluded that sex had something to do with a man and a woman making goofy noises and then yelling. We decided to ask Sister Kerasina about it the next time we had catechism. 
Most war films were about fighting the Japanese, not the Nazis. Why was that? After all, the Nazis had perpetrated the Holocaust, not that we knew what that was back then. For that matter, how many young people even know what it is now? I think that we didn't see the Nazis as equally villainous to the Japanese because the Nazis, out of uniform, were indistinguishable from the rest of us. Cruel, yes. Arrogant, yes. Supercilious, yes. But otherwise, just like us. With the Japanese, however, you added a racial dimension. Even in black and white, you knew that their skin tone leaned yellow. And then there was their buck teeth and soda pop bottle glasses and the way they would grin maliciously while machine gunning a helpless American airman descending in his parachute. Pearl Harbor was a manifestation of their cheat-to-win philosophy. Westerns were war films set on the frontier. You had the same good guys wore white hats, bad guys wore black hats, stereotypes. And if the bad guys happened to be Indians, then you even had the racial component with red skin substituting for yellow skin. Westerns, unlike war stories, featured beautiful women who usually represented morality and immorality. The moral woman was the wholesome schoolmarm type, while the immoral woman was usually the saloon girl who sometimes hid a heart of gold beneath seductive clothing and exaggerated makeup, aka a painted lady. In more contemplative Westerns, yes, there were a few, both women loved the hero, and his choice to marry the light woman showed him turning his back on moral uncertainty once and for all. The dark woman, in these circumstances, relinquished her claim reluctantly, but with a certain degree of acceptance that even she had preserved the moral balance. In science fiction movies, war stories set in a potential, although improbable, present or future, science was often represented by older, often eccentric professor types who were usually ignored by authorities, but who were often believed by young, handsome reporters. It helped that the Professor Irwin Corey types usually had beautiful daughters. I find that science fiction and horror movies somehow led me back to the question of religion. If I came home frightened by what I'd seen, I was reassured that the supernatural in any form wasn't real. It couldn't be, because there was no proof that monsters from the deep or creatures from outer space existed. If I said that Patsy's dad claimed that he saw a ghost hovering in the cemetery, probably after another night boozing at the ringside, I was told that his story was anecdotal. There was no verifiable proof. But if I pressed the issue by saying that baby Jesus being born through immaculate conception had to be anecdotal too, I was metaphorically crucified by a stare from my grandmother that would incinerate wallpaper accompanied by mutterings from her sister of how deficient my mother had been in parenting me. But I still don't get how some people can believe in God, practice religion, and deny the existence of the supernatural. I mean, in my book, religion and the supernatural are like peanut butter and jelly. Almost all the protagonists in those old films were men. Women were, at best, sidekicks, and at worst, distractions. Though, sometimes useful distractions in the sense that they could nurse the wounded hero back to health so that he could continue the good fight. I remember having a terrible crush on Anne Robinson, who played the scientist's daughter in War of the Worlds, and on Julie Adams, the creature from the Black Lagoon white bathing suit lady. Both women were pretty, wholesome, caring, unintentionally sexy, and great screamers. Given the opportunity, I would gratefully have married either. That way I could grunt, she could moan, and then we'd both yell, 
he shoots, he scores simultaneously. In some ways, that old movie house was a school for me, and the people who ran it were my teachers. I learned life lessons from it, from them, and of course, from the movies I watched. The theater was managed by Mr. Anderson. Middle-aged, balding, a personification of what I would call worn dignity. In other words, he was a human embodiment of the theater he managed. Remember those commercially produced Christmas stockings that popped up in stores every year? They were a couple of feet long, and their red mesh let you see the collection of toys and candies inside. They weren't cheap, and to a five-year-old, they were awesome. Well, on the Saturday before Christmas, the Strand... A.K.A. Mr. Anderson... ...hosted a Christmas party for kids 12 and under. Admission was free, and each kid got one of those stockings. Each kid! The line was around the block, but no one went home empty-handed. Just one restriction. You had to be from the neighborhood, and we enforced that vigorously. Mr. Anderson was the spirit of Christmas to me, and he still is. He taught me the importance of goodwill and the value of generosity. Then there was Miss Delaney. From her, I learned the importance of fantasizing. She sat in the ticket booth, which was next to the lobby doors. She was a reasonably attractive middle-aged woman with huge bazookas. In other words, her chest looked like the grill on a 56 Cadillac. She often wore blouses where there was a clasp at the neck, then an opening of roughly four inches, which displayed her ample cleavage, and then a row of vertical buttons down to the promised land. Those four inches gave life purpose where I was concerned. The taller I grew, the more clearly I could view those divine globes. I wanted to just cliff dive into that soft valley and never come up for air again. I knew instinctively that she was a great screamer. What happened on the Strand's scream was often less interesting than what happened at the foot of the Strand's scream. This was especially true if you were sitting through the double feature for a second time, which brings me to George Riley. George was the usher. He wore a uniform, was armed with a flashlight, and, as my father used to say, George's elevator didn't go to the top floor. In retrospect, I think George was probably somewhere on the spectrum. He had a horrible job. We knew he was powerless. The strongest action he could take was to stand at the end of our misbehaving row and catch us in his flashlight's beam. Now, you might think we were chagrined. Embarrassed. Even humiliated. No! <laughs> the spotlight made us celebrities to our peers, and we took full advantage of the drama potential. However, we never degraded George. In fact, we often inflated his authority to invent threat. If George caught you in his beam, he'd kick you out. He wouldn't let you back in for a month. He'd, he'd tell, tell your, your parents. parents. Of course, George wouldn't ever think to do any of those things, but it was important for us to believe that he would. Otherwise, there would have been no consequences to our misbehavior. And hadn't the nuns taught us that actions always had consequences? And remember what I said about Italians. If they don't have an enemy, they invent one. Now, everything I've said about George held true for all but one of us, Patsy. George and Patsy shared a misbegotten kinship. They were both victimized for appearance and behavior. In Patsy's case, as I've already mentioned, he was short, round, with Medusa hair and a tongue thrust. George was thin, balding, and what people back then called simple. He was one of those guys who looks and acts like he's in his late 40s, 
when he was probably still in his mid-twenties. He didn't wear clothes. They just sort of hung on his slight frame. On top of that, his posture was poor. He didn't really walk so much as skulk, which made him look sneaky. George was sad, later pathetic. You knew that being an usher tapped his full potential. We called him Lonesome George after the sad sack alter ego of a 50s comedian. As far as Patsy was concerned, George was a moving target. Literally, not figuratively. We were at our most inventive when two conditions were met. The first was that a heat wave had driven us to seek refuge in the Strand for several consecutive days. And the second was that both features, which we watched repeatedly on those consecutive steamy days, were of no interest whatsoever. A good example of such films was A Face in the Crowd, which depicts the rise and fall of a rural crooner as played by a pre-Mayberry Andy Griffith. To us, this movie had no saving graces whatsoever, so we resorted to treasure diving. Now, obviously, when I say treasure, I'm not referring to scattered gold doubloons or chests spilling over with all manner of diamonds, emeralds, and rubies. The only chests spilling over at the Strand belonged to Miss Delaney in the ticket booth. I'm referring instead to discarded candy and popcorn boxes which littered the floor of the Strand in great abundance. I remember that we began treasure diving by competing with each other for who could collect the greatest number of empty milk duds or black crows or jujubes or dots boxes in the shortest time. Crawling on hands and knees from the beginning to the end of seemingly countless rows of seats was dirty but satisfying work. I'm sure George must have been befuddled by the fact that he could sometimes hear us scuttling, but often didn't catch sight of us for long periods of time. We didn't come up for air very often. The problem with that particular pursuit was, of course, the now what factor. We needed something more. Just as we were taught that cigarette smoking would invariably lead to marijuana smoking, which would lead to coke snorting, which would lead to heroin shooting, we logically progressed from candy box collecting to popcorn box collecting. You could buy a simple dry box of popcorn for 15 cents, but buttered, aka wet popcorn, was 25 cents. I put buttered in air quotes because it wasn't butter at all. Dry popcorn came in collapsible square cardboard containers which were wider at the top to allow for groping in the dark and then tapered near the bottom to fit better in your hand. Wet popcorn came in wax-coated tapered cardboard cylinders. Empty wet popcorn boxes were of no interest beyond stacking them to see whose pile was tallest. Again, the now what factor. But empty dry popcorn boxes opened up a whole world of possibilities once Patsy discovered that a collapsed box, skillfully aimed, made a great frisbee substitute. Enter Lonesome George. Now I'm sure that an aeronautical engineer or a professor of physics could calculate all the variables involved in popcorn box assassination. Weight and greasiness of box, strength and determination of tosser, height and speed of skulking target, etc. So that a formula could be devised to accurately map the trajectory of the cardboard missile. Patsy didn't possess a degree or a formula, but he was still a master. He'd wing one at Lonesome George and then immediately scramble on hands and knees to another location. When George shined his flashlight where Patsy had been, one of us would then let fly from behind him. When he turned in that direction, Patsy would cut loose from his new location. Now, keep in mind that this is happening in a darkened theater where a movie's being projected and a few people are genuine ticket holders. But fortunately, just a few. On special occasions, George got a salvo. That was four or five boxes winging simultaneously from different directions. Cruel? Yeah, but comedy often is. Besides, we never aimed for his face. 
Now, if you'll join me and Mr. Peabody in his Wayback Machine, I'll ask him to move forward a few years in time. The Strand, like most small-town neighborhood theaters, went into a prolonged decline mostly as a result of the boob tube in our living rooms, which I can't condemn too much because selling and repairing them represented a sizable portion of my parents' income. Its downward trajectory only accelerated when it became a porno house showing X-rated movies, mostly to guys who wore long winter coats even during August heat waves. Eventually it closed, but remarkably, it still exists. Every seven or eight years, someone will come along with a proposal to reopen it as a neighborhood art center, or a performance venue, or a cultural attraction of some sort. When that happens, a story will appear in local papers, often accompanied by a contemporary photograph of the interior, which remains very much a time capsule. It's all still there. The screen, the seats, maybe even a stray popcorn box or two. Most important to me, the circular recess in the ceiling is still there with its painted constellations. Orion still brandishes his mighty sword, and Scorpio still threatens with her deadly stinger, and Taurus with his star-tipped horns. But the lights that marked their stars are gone now. The bulbs eventually burned out, and no one replaced them. For years after the theater closed up, I'd sometimes see Lonesome George walking around Thompsonville. I don't think he could ever get a driver's license. He'd often be talking into a handheld walkie-talkie with a long telescoping antenna. He'd be talking at full volume and carrying on an intense conversation. We, me, my family, my friends, my hometown, we knew. All of us. There was no one on the other end. But we never let on. Not one of us. When I was a young child, I looked out to the stars. I held my dreams close to my heart. Now, if I ask Mr. Peabody to move us further ahead into the future... But we're still in the past, mind you. I'll show you why I believe in serendipity, but not circumstance. What's the difference, you say? Serendipity suggests design. Karma, if you like. Circumstance is simply random. Big difference. When I was away in college, Patsy enlisted and ended up in Vietnam. We wrote back and forth a few times, but our lives were so different by then that we really didn't have much to tell each other once we got past the reminiscences. I remember that he said he was considering the military as a possible career choice. He said that he liked the army. That is, he liked how structured everything was, but that he really hated Southeast Asia. Eventually, the letters tapered off to nothing. Some months later, my mother told me that she'd heard from someone who came in her store that Patsy had been wounded in combat. A short article about him appeared in the Thompsonville Press soon after. She clipped it and saved it for me. It didn't really tell you much, just that his wounds had been serious and that he'd been sent to an army hospital in Japan to recuperate. Eventually, the whole story came out about how the Viet Cong overran his outpost and he'd taken a bullet in the head. It may even have been friendly fire. Either nobody knew or no one was sane. I wrote, but he never responded. I eventually spoke to someone who knew his mom. She was telling people that Patsy would be a long time recuperating because he had to learn how to pretty much do everything for himself all over again. She also said he'd never truly be Patsy again. Patsy finally came home after over a year in the hospital. With his physical limitations and his mental challenges, he couldn't live at home. At least not at first, the Veterans Administration said. Without a full-time attendant. The Army didn't offer to pay for that. Instead, the government paid for his keep in Parkway Pavilion, 
which, while it billed itself as a comprehensive rehabilitation facility, was actually just a glorified convalescent home. I.e. a place where people waited to die. I visited Parkway Patsy. His name for himself. Whenever I was home from college. I found it to be incredibly difficult to see him like that, but I tried to hide my dismay and discomfort. Patsy saw through that pretty quickly. It made him appreciate my visits even more. He'd usually be in a wheelchair, propped up and stabilized by pillows, and waiting for me in the lobby where the TV played loudly and the smell of stale urine wasn't quite so strong. His lower body was often covered by a quilt crafted by one of the Parkway residents because Patsy often complained about his legs and feet being cold. His Medusa hair was long gone thanks to U.S. Army barbers, and the scar on the left side of his head stood out prominently. The right side of his mouth drooped a bit, which made him sound drunk when he spoke. (laughs) He joked about that. (laughs) When a nurse brought him his meds, he'd order another screwdriver. He salivated freely. Sometimes he drooled uncontrollably. His right arm and hand were often spasmodic. We'd talk for a half hour or so, and then he'd start to tire. On one of my first visits, I offered to wheel him back to his room. He gratefully accepted. Once there, I offered to help get him from the wheelchair to his bed, but he said it would probably be better to let an attendant do it, so he pushed a call button attached to his bed frame. I turned on his TV while we waited and was looking for a program I thought he might enjoy when the attendant walked in. It was George Riley a.k.a. Lonesome George. Remember what I said about serendipity? Patsy and George greeted each other, and then George strained to lift Patsy from the chair to the edge of his bed. I offered to help, as Patsy clearly outweighed George by 50 pounds or more, but George said, Not necessary. Once George had made him comfortable, Patsy asked George if he remembered me. I felt pretty embarrassed right then. George looked at me for the longest ten seconds of my life, and then said flatly, Yes, I remember. I started to verbally stumble myself into an apology, but George cut me off with an abrupt, Bygones. And then he left. Patsy then explained to me that George had only been working at the Parkway for a couple of weeks. He got the job through some kind of foundation whose name I don't recall, but I know disadvantaged was included. They dropped him off in the morning and picked him up in a van when his shift ended. I asked Patsy if he thought George held a grudge. He said he didn't know, but that George hadn't demonstrated any animosity so far. I made a point of visiting Patsy whenever I was home through college and graduate school, on holidays and during semester breaks. He remained much the same during those years, neither improving nor declining. At some point, he must have accepted that the Parkway had become his permanent residence. We didn't talk about it. What was there to say? While Patsy himself didn't change, his relationship with George did. Over time, they became casual friends, and later, even close friends. George started finding ways to spend more time with Patsy while on duty. He even came in to visit Patsy on his days off, and he often stayed after his shift to watch TV with Patsy or to play cards or board games. They both liked playing sorry. George then bicycled home alone in the dark, sometimes on snow-covered streets. I almost always saw George when I visited Patsy, though my visits became less and less common when I finished school and started working. Then came marriage, then came children, but I always made a point of visiting Parkway Patsy at Christmas, bringing a small gift, at first just for Patsy, but later for George as well. He loved Planters Mixed Nuts. George had set up a small artificial Christmas tree for Patsy next to his bed, where Patsy could turn the lights on and off with a rocker switch. 
The tree's base was covered with a white towel with the property of Parkway Pavilion stencil hidden by artificial snow, which looked and smelled suspiciously like ivory soap flakes. Nestled in the snow were wrapped gifts with labels which said, From George to Patsy. And from Patsy to George. Shortly after the birth of my first child, I visited Patsy to show him some photos and to ask if he would be an extended godfather to Brendan, my son. He seemed to like that idea. I was surprised to see that he had lost weight since my last visit and seemed noticeably less coordinated in both movement and speech. I pretended not to notice, but I could never fool Patsy. Anyhow, neither of us spoke about it until I was leaving. We said our goodbyes and wished each other a Merry Christmas. My habit when I reached the door of his room was to turn to give him a quick goodbye wave. Before I started my turn, he said, Hey. When I turned back, he said, Parkinson's. Then he turned on his side away from me. The disease worked its will on Patsy quickly and mercilessly. I saw him only twice more. Each time, he was more frail. Each time, he was less aware of me and of his surroundings. During those final stages, George became virtually a personal nurse to Patsy. He fed him every day, bathed him with a sponge, helped him brush his teeth, and when Patsy became incontinent, George took care of that too. Patsy died when Brendan was almost two years old. George was asked to be a pallbearer, but he was too frail himself to carry the weight of a coffin, so he demurred. I'm sure that part of the reason was also that George didn't own a dark suit and certainly couldn't afford to buy one. I had a word with Patsy's parents about that, and his mom spoke to George, but George was too proud to accept that kind of offer. Still, both Patsy's mom and dad insisted that George stand in the receiving line, and he did, in his usher's uniform. In fact, at the military service, George joined the others in uniform when they saluted. Nobody said a word about that. In Frenchtown, we knew how to show respect. George stopped working at the parkway soon after. He couldn't bear being in the place without Patsy. I heard from someone that he became very reclusive, rarely stepping outside his little subsidized apartment. He passed less than a year after Patsy. He just wasted away to nothing. He didn't so much die as he willed himself to stop living. Some people said he died of a stroke. Some said he starved himself to death. But I knew the truth. George simply died of a broken heart. George taught me forgiveness. George taught me charity. George taught me love. When I was a young child. Thank you for listening to this episode of Frenchtown. Remember that new episodes drop on Mondays at midnight, so please continue to join us. Frenchtown was written and produced by Jim Gatto. The principal readers are Dana Schatz and Jeffrey Anbinder. The technical director is David Keith. Introductory and playout music was written and performed by Lisa Spike Norman. Whoever you are and I'm coming home again were written by Jim Gatto. It's Almost Tomorrow was also written by Jim Gatto based on an idea from Lorraine Nelson. Additional musical recording was provided by Chrissy Gardner, Ryan Gardner, Gracie Price, and Megan Keith. The Frenchtown graphic design is courtesy of Carolyn Kamerska. Special thanks go to associate producer Kathy Keith and to Lorraine Nelson, Stephanie Levine, and Elaine Bissett. Frenchtown is a fictionalized memoir. 
Although some of the places mentioned existed at one time, they are either gone now or vastly different from what they were over 60 years ago. The characters are composites of friends and relatives I once knew, but they were not modeled on individuals who actually existed. Any resemblance to people or places is unintentional and coincidental. The entire contents of Frenchtown is copyrighted. For further information about Frenchtown and its contributors, please send inquiries to frenchtowninfo at gmail.com. When I was a young child, I looked out to the stars. I held my dreams close to my heart. I wanted to make the sounds that would calm the other's fears. Just to be an island and dry all tears. But as I grew up, I some folks like it hard And some people want to live in fear So I let it go Looking for the thing that they call peace Harder I held on, the more ground it seemed I lost It seemed there was no place for me to be Then I let it go Caution to the wind and let the wind fill your sails. 